This is the current federal tax developments for the week of November the 6th, 2023. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers, and this week I'm recording from back home in Phoenix, and we'll be looking at some developments that have taken place over the past week in federal taxes. Uh, First, we're going to talk about inflation-adjusted retirement numbers that were released this week by the IRS for 2024. The IRS also gave us the date they're going to shut down the modernized e-file system for 1040 returns, and that's coming up here in a couple of weeks. We'll discuss a case about a trust found liable for transferee tax related to a failed son-of-boss tax shelter that was meant to offset the gain from sale of assets inside of a corporation. It was a C-Corp problem. They had trying to deal with it, and we'll talk about how it ended up not quite working. We'll also talk about the IRS for one more year, extending the grace period for claims for refund on the Section 41 credit for increasing research activities. And we'll talk a little bit about how this is the third straight extension we've had, what exactly we're getting extension for, and probably what this means. You know, are we going to continue to see these grace period extensions or is this really the last chance? And finally, we're going to talk about the tax court which reacted this week to a Third Circuit decision that held that the tax courts does have the right to grant equitable relief if a taxpayer fails to file their 90-day petition in a deficiency case. Uh, This case, the tax court is going to decline to follow the Third Circuit's ruling outside the Third Circuit. In a case that would go to the Fourth Circuit, the tax court ends up in a split decision, but a very large majority on the side of saying, nope, we're not changing this, uh, decides that in fact, it is a jurisdictional matter, meaning that the court has no right or ability to grant equitable relief in a case like this. Let's go first to the new retirement plan numbers for 2024. This was noticed 2023-75, issued on November the 1st, 1st of 2023. And what happens with this is every year, the IRS around this time, right around the end of October, beginning of November, issues their annual retirement plan inflation adjusted numbers for the following year. And the thing that they usually lead with, and which we'll lead with here, is the maximum elective deferrals that you can make into a 401k or similar elective deferral plan. And that will go up to $23,000 next year. We're also going to find the annual compensation limit for considering employer contributions into qualified plans will rise to $345,000 for 2024. The maximum simple account contribution, well, it's a little more complicated because we're going to have special rules and in some cases can allow a simple plan to increase certain contribution limits, but the basic limit will rise to $16,000 next year. IRA contributions will go up to $7,000 by default. And a change that was part of the Secure 2.0 Act, next year, taxpayers making qualified charitable distributions, those who are over age 70 and a half, making a qualified charitable distribution from their IRA account, will now be able to make a transfer of up to $105,000, up from $100,000 that we've had ever since Congress first allowed this. The Secure 2.0 Act put an inflation-adjusted clause in there that will up it in increments of $5,000, and we are now at a 105,000 limitation. So the IRS will 
recognize that option next year. So there's a little bit more that your clients can transfer in 24. Please remember these are the 24 numbers, not the 23 numbers. So don't go using them on the returns you're doing tax planning for right now for the end of 23, but this is next year's set of numbers. We also have an announcement we get around this time of year from the IRS where they have the, in the quick alert for tax professionals that went out on November 1st, the IRS has a, the article titled 1040 Modernized E-Filed MEF Production Shutdown. And this is the annual shutdown for accepting Forms 1040. You know, the IRS shuts down the electronic filing system generally from somewhere in mid-November until sometime in mid-January. And in mid-January, they will reopen it and we will be accepting returns at that point for 23 along with 22 and 21 returns, basically the three years involved. So we'll be running those and I guess 20 returns. We'll still have the open years will still be accepted. So, but that will be shut down. If you have a client who has not yet filed their return for 2020, um, for 2022, right? The 22 returns, I can't remember which one we were doing. You know, you probably want to quite try to get that in. If you don't get it in by the due date, your client should go ahead and paper file. I understand all the problems that creates, but if the client's other option is to get two more months of late filing penalties or potentially more, um, it's probably best to go ahead and say, sorry, you got to paper file this thing. So be aware of that. That's part of the deal. The shutdown will occur on just basically right just before midnight on November 18th, Saturday, November 18th, 2023. So that's essentially going to be in just a little less than two weeks. So you have two more weeks to get the 1040s for 24 or 22, I should say, in, as well as anybody that needs to file a return for earlier years or somebody trying to do electronic filing of an amended return. Again, all of this is going to shut down. Now, it does not affect business returns. That shutdown comes later. So, and if you're looking on the screen, it, does, it says does. It's just a does not affect business returns. That shutdown usually comes somewhere in the middle of December and is generally for a shorter duration. So be aware of that. Uh, the one thing it can catch out, uh, if you have a, a trust return or an estate return, you're probably an estate return, that has a fiscal year in that is March, um, the, ex the extended due dates are going to come right in the middle of that business shutdown, uh, usually, because that would be the one that would be set on December 30th. They, they are 31st. They tend to keep it away from the 15th of December after that date, and they try to get it up and running before the 15th of January. So the potentially exposed things would be any March year-end uh, fiduciary returns, and that might be forced to be a paper filing if you're not careful and you come in during that time period. So keep that in mind, that coming forward. Now, the one that I'm announcing now will only affect send submissions for 1040s. Now, it does affect both federal and state if the state is one that piggybacks on the feds. Some states like California have their own separate electronic filing process. So you could file a California only uh, 1040 at that time. Now, the other neat thing about this is, remember, Californians got an extra one-month extension to file their 1040s, and obviously the shutdown date comes just after the uh, extended due date for doing your California extended, you know, super extended, shall we say, uh, date that counts as if it was filed at April 15th. So that is a useful date. You can still e-file those California returns, but if you come in a bit late from that date, you're back to paper filing. 
So keep that in mind. Other electronic services, such as getting your acknowledgments uh, and other state services that are supported by the IRS will continue. What you cannot do is basically submit returns, but you'll still get back acknowledgments that are processed. So if you've submitted the return, you know, let's say you get it in right out there on the 18th at 11, 11.30 p.m. By the way, it's 11.59 p.m. Eastern time, Eastern Standard Time for everybody. So yeah, it doesn't change by time zones. If you're sitting in Hawaii, you don't get an extra, you know, five hours. Got to remember we're back on, they're back on daylight savings time, you know, in the Eastern time zone. Uh, and Hawaii doesn't change there. So it'd be five hours. Hawaii doesn't, Arizona doesn't, U.S. Virgin Island don't. I'm sure maybe there'll be a couple other places uh, that don't. I don't know what the other U.S. territories do. Uh, but basically, yeah, it will be Eastern Standard Time. So you have to adjust that for your time zone to make sure you have the right things in. As I said, in Hawaii, that will mean on Saturday, it's basically going to shut down just before 7 p.m. So if you're in Hawaii, yeah, you got like a 7 p.m. shutdown time of on Saturday the 18th to get everything in, or they're going to stop accepting returns. The date for reopening the services has not yet been announced, but it's generally in mid-January. And that one often depends upon whether Congress passes a last-minute tax bill. And you really have trouble de determining if I, Congress is going to do it or not, because some years it looks like they're not going to do it, and then suddenly everything comes together, while other years it looks like we're going to get a big set of year-end tax bills, and they never get the deal done. So just keep that open. If there is a year-end set of tax bills, don't be surprised if that opening date slips later into January, rather than being right around the 15th. Usually, if nothing happens, it's right around January 15th. But again, if they get a last minute law change, then quite often it slips. And not only does it slip, but quite often it slips. Plus, when they come back online, there's a large number of returns you can't file because if you have certain items on the return, they'll be barred from electronic filing until the IRS gets that part of it updated. And all that depends primarily on what things Congress changes in the law. Next up, we'll talk about a court case here for a trust that got stuck with a transferee liability on taxes arising from a failed son-of-boss stock sale. This is the Dillon Trust LLC versus United States. Case is number 17-1898T, 172022T, and 172023T. These all come out of the U.S. Court of Federal Claims. This is where they come. And decisions were Halloween decisions, October 31st of 2023. Now, this trust held an interest in two C corporations. And they the C corporations internally had $90 million in assets, but very, very low basis, $16 million in basis. As you may know, there being C corps, we really had limited options as to what to do. And if you want to know probably why these were C corps, is these are long-standing business entities. I'm certain they were C corps from early on. And with their shareholders being these trusts. I, my guess would probably be back in the Tax Reform Act of 1986. Uh, these trusts really, they had no good way to put these into the trust aside from being C-Corps. Again, S-Corp shares really can't be held by trusts unless they are either an ESBT or a QSST. And these particular trusts seem relatively complex, messy for a very wealthy family. And so probably there was no good option, but they're stuck with a C-Corp. Now that wasn't a problem until such time as they're looking to liquidate. And a couple of things happened here. 
first thing uh, they were going on now, I think at this point, to like the great-grandchildren generations. And so there was a lot of push to start splitting things up because as you go further down the line in one of these trusts, these relatives are less and less related to each other, have no clue each other are, and don't necessarily like their lives all tied together. And secondly, they got out of the blue an offer for uh, some major farmland that they owned that was a major portion of one of the two corporations. So a couple of things kind of forced their hand in this situation. Now, the problem was that when they try to liquidate this, the cost of liquidation is going to essentially get rid of nearly half the cash. Because again, since it's a C-Corp, there'll be a tax paid at the corporate level on the gain inside the C-Corp, and then there'll be a tax paid by the trust, the shareholders, or it passes out to the shareholders, whichever way we structure this when we liquidate, if we liquidate the trust entirely. But there'll be another level of tax paid. And again, there's very low basis in the stock. It goes back many years. So almost all the remaining money that comes out of the C-Corp will end up being taxed as a gain when it goes to the individual shareholders, and they have to pick that up as a gain on sale. So obviously, they were looking at some way to try to avoid writing those big checks, or at least drastically reducing. So they had to write two of them. So what they did, they entered into a Midco-style transaction involving a son-of-boss tax shelter. Now, not really going to go into explaining those in detail. This case has dragged on long enough that I think it's probably one of the last Midco son-of-boss cases we'll see. I'm probably wrong about that. We'll have a whole bunch. But still, we're not seeing those structures set up today. Suffice it to say, generally the structure here was to have the corporations sell the assets and in some way, shape, or form, create some artificial losses inside the corporation. That allowed the corporation to offset the gain on sale with the losses. And right as soon as that happened, and we'd use this intermediate companies, we'd have various intermediaries so that funds did not go directly from the liquidating corporations to the shareholders but essentially got routed through a couple of odd structures. In this case, it was really messy how they structured up. There was even a bid. Uh, they were bidding on buying an interest in something that clearly had one piece of worth. There was little point in having people bid on something. It's like having somebody bid on $100,000 sitting on the table. It's like, well, it's $100,000. Uh, why am I going to bid any different than that? You know, in essence, uh, and I'm sure, you know, your minimum price, 100000 and I'm not going to bid a premium for them. So yeah, that, it was kind of an odd situation, but set up. The idea with the intermediary is to try to break the chain in, so that if in fact the son of boss transaction turns out the IRS attacks it and it doesn't work, surprise, that's what happened. The uh, corporation lost its court case. Uh, there's no assets left in the corporation. At that point, the corporation is bankrupt and so at that point, you know, the IRS wins a right to assess tax, but there's no place to collect it from. At least that's the theory of these structures. Now, I'll be honest, Midco structures have not fared well in the courts, and this one won't either. But this is a slightly different. I haven't seen one for a while. Now, the IRS challenged a corporation's position and prevailed in court. Now, they had two corporations. They got merged into one and various things. So the case in question is the 2014 case of Humboldt Shelby Holding Court versus Commissioner. And it was the tax court ruled in favor of the IRS in 2014, DC memo 2014-47. 
And then the uh, decision of the tax court was affirmed by the Second Circuit on appeal in 2015. But again, the corporation has no money. So now the IRS is turning around and trying to figure out where to get the money from. And the question in front of us is, is whether the transferee liability provisions of the code will allow the IRS to go after the parties that effectively receive the cash in this transaction. Remember, the whole point of this transaction was to liquidate those corporations and transfer the funds. And these funds are going sometimes to individuals, sometimes to new trusts set up for the great grandkids. I mean, there are various structures here. But these monies are going out effectively, either directly or indirectly, to the various heirs, or at least trusts for those heirs. So the question is, can the IRS recover the money out there, or are they just going to be out of luck because the entity that owes the tax, which clearly is a corporation, simply has no assets left. And this gets us to a concept called transferee liability, which does apply in this. Now, the federal law under 6901 governs transferee liability, and it defines who a transferee can be, but it doesn't actually establish liability. Rather, if there is tra transferee liability is a concept that goes beyond tax. And if there has been a fraudulent conveyance, that's the case where a party receiving assets may have to pay off debts of the party from which they receive the assets if it's deemed to be a fraudulent conveyance under state law. And so in this case, we have to look both at whether it was a qualified, whether these individuals could be qualified federal transferees and whether or not the transferee liabilities whether or not there was a fraudulent conveyance under, in this case, the governing state law was New York state law. Under New York state law, that would make these people potentially liable. So again, there are two tests. Are they people that the federal government's allowed to go after? And then number two, is there a liability established at the state level? Is this a transaction that would lead to a potential claim under state property law or a fraudulent conveyance? So that's kind of the pair of things we're looking at. Now, the IRS was going after New York Debt and Credit uh, Section 273, conveyant by insolvent. That's the method they were going to try to use to recover it. There are a number of sections under New York state law that will talk to you about a fraudulent conveyance and will open up the possibility various ways. But one of the ways is this conveyance by an insolvent entity. And the IRS selected this and the court indicated they kind of understood why, because there is a purely, you know, there was a fraudulent transaction. But if you go for that fully fraudulent, you know, transaction by a party who's caused funds to be transferred that made the entity, that made the entity insolvent, um, there is a good faith provision there that conceivably could have been a defense raised by the taxpayers. So they're going after this conveyance by the insolvent. And that section of New York law says every conveyance made and every obligation incurred by a person who is or will thereby be or will be thereby rendered insolvent is fraudulent as to creditors without regard to his actual intent if the conveyance is made or the obligation is incurred without a fair consideration. The concept here would be the corporation is transferring these funds to the shareholders and at that time it renders the corporation insolvent. As such, if they can establish this under both the federal rule and New York state rule, 
then in essence, the IRS will be able to collect the taxes due directly from the parties that now have those assets. Okay. Now, one key issue here, though, was because remember, under the Midco structure, the idea is to break this up into a bunch of entities. So the assets did not travel directly from the insolvent corporation to the individual shareholders, be they trust individuals whatsoever. So it didn't transfer directly. So as the court noted, what they had to consider is, was this actually all part of a single transaction? So even though we on paper saw assets go from one corp to another corp, and then like a installment note was sold, and there were various other transfers that took place, if all of that was really part of a single unified transaction, and that was the true intent, then we can ignore all those intermediate transfers and we can simply treat it as a single transfer. Now, the court found in this case that it was because fundamentally the whole thing started because everybody was aware of this big tax that was going to be due. A big amount of tax dollars had to be written. Everybody was aware that they were trying to reduce that tax and get it down as much as possible. And the conclusion was that going through all of these transactions was effectively the method concocted and that, in fact, having all these entities serve no real economic purpose, including having that crazy bidding, serve no purpose except to try to put up more of these kind of in-place in blocks to try to say, oh, here's another entity, here's another entity. See, it wasn't all one transaction, it go directly to. And the court said, well, no, the intent all along, these entities serve no real purpose aside from, you know, confusing the matter and making it look like things didn't go directly. But in reality, all of these were linked. None of these transactions would have taken place unless all of them took place. And the fundamental goal of this was to do exactly what you can't do here, which is take the funds from the corporation that has this potentially large federal tax liability and transfer them to other parties, rendering the corporation insolvent and therefore unable to pay the tax bill. And so they said, well, it's all one transaction to get those funds out of there. And it wasn't as if nobody and nobody thought that son of boss could be attached. I know this goes back to the early 2000s, but I think from the very beginning, everybody was kind of aware the IRS was not going to like son of boss transactions and that they could be challenged and the Midco structure too. And while they sound cute on paper, you know, and there were some large accounting firms and legal and law firms pushing these concepts. Um, you know, there's always that catch of if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And fundamentally, the courts went along with that. They didn't care about all that nice analysis you had. Um, their theory was, no, nope, at the end of the day, th this is a substance over form situation. So we knew they didn't like it. It wasn't like nobody knew. They ruled specifically that use of that third entity to avoid a direct transfer, the concept of called Midco, and Midco is rephrased because the idea is there's, a, there's at least one company in the middle. So there's a Midco, a, an intermediate company that, that serves to try to break the chain, did not serve to avoid transfer liability due to the unified nature of the transaction. So all of those intermediate entities were going to be ignored, saying they serve no real purpose aside from trying to break the chain. So that, that was basically the idea behind all of this. And also, we have to show there's at least some culpability on the part of the taxpayers. And in this case, the court found the taxpayers 
remained willfully ignorant of the effective fraudulent transfers. They had reason to know the federal tax would not be paid. They had reason to, or had they made inquiries, they would have discovered about bankrupting the corporation doing other stuff. Um, the taxpayers tried to argue, well, well, they, they, had, they had to be aware there was some fraudulent thing there and then, and then not do it. The court said, no, the law doesn't say. Remaining willfully ignorant, they said, if you already know there's a fraud, knowing there's a fraud is just automatically you're in. But if there's a situation, essentially, that just looks too good to be true, and you don't ever ask anybody about more details because you don't want to know the details, right? I don't want to know because if I know, that could turn out to be a bad thing. And they decided that, yeah, that, that seemed to be what was here. Nobody wanted to know if this was actually fraudulent, so they didn't ask. Now, the big thing to know about this case, so in this case, they did it. But please note, there is a state law inquiry. Depending upon state law, depending upon various specific issues of that state law, and depending upon the exact facts of the case, it is possible that you could get a different result in a different state. But I will warn you that the track record for Midco transactions in court has not been good. Um, these things tend to fall apart. So while you can't say much, except this is a New York state case under New York specific transactions, um, I think it's at least a warning sign that a transaction like this is a potential problem and a reminder about this whole transfer liability. It's not enough to bankrupt the corporation, you know, or whatever entity that would owe the tax. You always have to worry about the transfer liability and the state law rule for essentially, you know, fraudulent conveyance laws. Because, yeah, you know, you, you don't get to avoid your creditors by just transferring your assets, getting the assets transferred away from the thing a judgment was rendered against. That is the whole concept of fraudulent conveyance, because if there weren't such laws, then obviously people that lost lawsuits or got awards against themselves would obviously turn around and just do this right away. So the idea is that that's a bad faith transfer and they'll be able to pursue the funds. We now have another thing, we, and we, this is, we continue this for the third time. The IRS has updated the frequently asked questions on their webpage, Research Credit Claims on Amended Returns, Frequently Asked Questions. This was updated on October 30, though the page is now dated November 2nd. I don't know what they changed a couple of days later, but there was no obvious thing there on that day, but it is now dated November 2nd. On October 15th of 2021, we're going back for years, and we talked about this on here when it happened, the IRS got tired of research credit claims that were essentially, you know, just being submitted with either inadequate documentation or the flood them with a giant paperwork documentation, and but not really explaining why the claim qualified for the credit. So on that date, the IRS set out what would be sort of five key things that had to be in a research credit claim, as well as their position that such a, if, if a claim did not have that, that the claim would be considered to be effectively totally defective and not filed. Now, when they did that, obviously that would be a big change. And this was in uh, FAF 2021-41, I should say, 101, and IRS News release IR 2021-203 with updates for the past couple of years, they offered a program said, okay, the theory of it was 
if you sent in this claim for refund just before the statute was going to run and the IRS, you know, it arrives at the IRS maybe on the statute day, or basically there's definitely not time for the service to look at it and process it before the statute would run. And many of these were filed like that because, of course, that eliminates some of your risk. And so what they turned what they said is, if you do that, we get it, we review it, you have not provided the details that's in that FAF, then we're going to say, sorry, this claim was never filed. And their position is it doesn't qualify under the case law. They say it doesn't qualify as an informal claim or a valid claim to start the statute in either case. And they said the only reason why some prior cases allowed things like this was because the service started processing the claim. They will not process the claim. The first thing I look for is that information that they claim they must have. If that's not there, they're going to say your claim was never filed because this, this claim doesn't meet the minimum standards required to state a claim under the research credit. And for that reason, they would reject it back. And in theory, if your statute was closed, you're out of luck. Well, because that's going to be a major change, that's not how people worked. The IRS said, okay, we're going to, until January 10th of 2022, basically in this case, or January 10th, I should say of, let's see, get, get the right year there. I think it was January 10th of 23, right? January 10th of 23, we're going to go ahead and, you know, we'll get by one for the one year period. We're going to go ahead and give you 45 days after we kick it back and you can perfect your claim and we'll treat it as if it was filed when you mailed it in at first. But if you don't fix it within 45 days, then the statute will have run tough luck, right? So the 45 day rule came into play. Now, again, they swore it would go away, right? And then if you didn't send in something with all of this and the IRS rejection didn't come back to you until after the statute had closed, it was just tough luck. You lost your ability to get that claim. You're going to send them in with this information regardless. Get it right. Now, the IRS initially provided for a transition period that would expire in January of 22. They then pushed that back a year, right? It was going to be a grace period of 45 days, as I said, that would correct the claims. That has twice been extended by one year. So the initial date was very close to the start. Then they said, okay, we'll give you a year. Right. So it went to January 5th, 10th of 2023. Then it went last year to January 10th of 2024. And now it's going to go to January 10th of 2025. We're again extending that grace period. What we don't know is if that grace period is going to be extended again next year. We're going to get to this time next year and we'll go to January 10th of 2026. Or, you know, is this really the last chance? There's only so many times Iris keeps pushing it back a year. You start coming to believe that why don't they just make the 45-day grace period permanent? And I think there's at least some concern because, again, if they go back and they go hard and say, sorry, you can't, you don't have any time to fix this. You're just out of luck. That's going to probably get a court challenge pretty quick. And I think the service, while being very brave in their memo uh, and stating that, that this will work, I think they get cold feet every year, every time we get close to this. So I'm sure there's some that are saying, why are we pushing this? Just give them 45 days. You know, then they were told you have to perfect this within 45 days or we're treating it as never filed. And since we gave them a reasonable time frame in which to give what we asked for, then, you know, they're going to say, look, we, we think we can win this. 
right? We're not going to deny the claim. We're just not going to process it. But we gave them 45 days to give us a processable claim. So we're going to tell them your claim is not processable because you have to do these five things that we told you about years ago, you know, and you should have known if you're doing these sorts of claims that you needed this. So my guess is we may see the 45 days become permanent. But again, they didn't do that this year. They just went into the FAQ quietly and moved the date. So we haven't moved again this year. So if you are filing these or you were concerned that you wanted to get in before January 1st, 10th of 24, you know, you thought that that was your due date. Uh, we do have some more time. So there is a little bit of breathing room if your claim's not perfect. But again, preferably go read the FAF and make sure you provide the five types of information specifically they want. And one of the things they make clear is you can't just put a 300 page report on the back and say, oh, it's in there somewhere. You have to point out the actual page every question they have is answered on. So you can't just can't just flood them with a big document is basically what they said. Finally, we have the U.S. Tax Court in Sanders versus Commissioner 161 T Tax TC number eight. So it's a reported tax court decision issued November 2nd, 2023. It's reported for an obvious reason, because the issue is what is the tax court's position going to be on this outside of the Third Circuit? So let's talk about some prior case law that impacts this case. Because this all started in 2022 when the U.S. Supreme Court issued the, their opinion in the case of Bachelor PC versus Commissioner 145 Supreme Court 1493, a 2022 case. And in that case, Supreme Court held that petitioner, that it petitions for collection due process to the tax court that didn't arrive by the 30-day deadline, nevertheless could still be heard by the court if there was sufficient cause shown to make it reasonable to grant equitable relief. So even though the law said you had to file this petition by the end of the 30th day, you know, by the 30-day deadline, um, if you failed to do so, they're saying, well, the taxpayer deserves to have their chance in court to give their reasons why, reasonable cause, why they couldn't meet the date. And if the if the court finds that equity demands that they be allowed to go forward, then the court can allow the petition, even though it came in after the 30th day. Now, that case was interesting. It was a collection statute, which is collection due process, which is separate from the main deficiency provision that we're normally talking about in tax court cases. And, but the obvious question became, does this analysis change the date or change the proper treatment? Can we get equitable relief for a deficiency petition, which is what we're usually dealing with here? You know, the IRS is after you for $14,000, claiming you claim deductions for expenses you had no right to claim on this return. Well, in the case of Hallmark Research Collective versus Commissioner, 159 TC 126, also issued in 2022, the tax court was considering a case where somebody didn't file on time, you know, didn't file by the 90th day and was acting for equitable relief. And the tax court reviewed the case and said, well, it, no, the things are, these deficiency petition rules are fundamentally different. So therefore, the Supreme Court's ruling in Bachelor does not change it. Even though we've looked over their rationale, looked over their reasoning, we don't believe that this changes it. Therefore, if you don't get in by the 90th day, we have no right to grant you equitable relief, meaning that tough luck, Hallmark Research Collective's case will not be heard by the tax court. In 2023, the Third Circuit heard the case of Culp v. Commissioner, 
75 F 4th 196. Again, a 2023 case. In this case, the Third Circuit Court of Appeals disagreed with the Hallmark holding. Right? You know, again, Culp had missed their date. Um, they argued for equitable relief. The, you know, the tax court citing Hallmark said, sorry, we can't grant equitable relief. The Culp's appealed to the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. Okay, so Third Circuit Court of Appeals, which is New Jersey, uh, Pennsylvania, and Delaware, I believe, are the three states involved there. Um, the Third Circuit said, tax courts, you're wrong. Bachelor would apply in this case. You're required. We don't see the fundamental difference between the deficiency peti petitions and the collection due process petitions that the Supreme Court ruled upon in the Bachelor case. So because of that, we're saying that you need to decide whether or not Culp's reasons for filing late are sufficient to allow for a granting of equitable relief. Now, I didn't rule whether Culp should get equitable relief, but they ruled that the tax court had to decide this. Under federal law, remember, the tax court's a national court. But if you appeal the tax court's decision, so for instance, let's say I'm an Arizona native, I'm an Arizona native and resident. So let's say I go to tax court, I lose the case, right? Tax court rules against me. If I believe the court made an error, you know, in as a matter of law, I, I can actually file my appeal and my appeal will go to the appeals that are heard by the circuit that has jurisdiction over Arizona. That would be the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. If I lived in New Mexico, then my case would go to the Tenth Circuit. If I lived in Texas, it would go to the 5th, Florida, the 11th, etc., so on. Under a rule called the Golson Rule, right, which goes back to an old tax court case, because the tax court's got this problem. The circuits don't always agree on things, and there may be different holdings in different circuits. But the, the tax court decided that effectively, since we know this case on appeal will go to like in my case, the Ninth Circuit, if the Ninth Circuit has ruled on this as a matter of law, even if we've held different, and the remember on reported cases, that tells us what the tax court will rule with the same facts. But even if there's a reported case that's at odds with what the Ninth Circuit has held, we've given a reported case saying we're going to do it using method A, the Ninth Circuit says, no, you're going to use method B, for my case, they're going to use method B, even at the tax court trial level, because they know that the Ninth Circuit will say, use the wrong, you did the wrong method. Okay. But that also means if the Ninth Circuit's the only circuit that's ruled that way, then outside the Ninth Circuit, the tax court will still follow its own rule. So you can get a different result. So our question becomes, is the Ninth Circuit going to now say, hey, Third Circuit, you know what? You're right. We're going to go ahead and we're going to withdraw Hallmark and we're going to follow you because we have seen the error of our ways. So unlike this, or are they going to say, we don't think the Third Circuit's right. Now, we can't override them for those that live in the Third Circuit. So if you're a New Jersey taxpayer and you're filing your petition, right, and you're late filing your tax court petition, for the New Jersey residents, the tax court's going to allow you to present an argument about whether you should qualify for equitable relief and have to make a decision on equitable relief. 
But if you're if you live in New York, let's say, which is the Second Circuit and has not ruled on this matter, if you live in the Second Circuit, we're just going to toss out him instantly. So depending upon which side of a border you live on, you can get a very different result. And that's how it works. So that's the Golson rule. Now, this case involved Ms. Sanders, right? Ms. Sanders mailed her tax court petition in, and it was postmarked, clearly postmarked, everybody agrees, two days after the last date for filing her petition per the 90-day letter, which they also verified was actually computerized by the IRS. So she had a petition that went in postmarked two days after the last day she was allowed to file the petition. Obviously, she's outside the 90-day window. And if, in fact, this is a jurisdictional matter, that is, the tax court doesn't have jurisdiction unless you file within that 90-day window, then case over. Ms. Sanders, you simply don't, you're not going to get your day in court because, you know, the tax court can't hear your case. Now, this case's appeal would go to the Fourth Circuit. So this raises the issue. The Fourth Circuit has not ruled on this issue, right? They, they've not said whether Bechler changes the rules. So how is the tax court going to go, right? The tax court in this case said, our prior decisions were not based solely on stare decisis. Stare decisis is the theory that you follow prior opinions, you know, prior existing law. In essence, we want a consistent set of results. However, that is precedent. But if the Supreme Court changes the law, which they can, they can change it. And they, they can basically and say, you know what? Those previous cases are decided wrong. We now are going to change the precedent. And they certainly did that in collection due process. But did they do that here? And what the tax court said was, they instead used what's called prior construction canon. And they said in the area of deficiency petitions, there had been decades of case law and administrative rulings that held that the 90-day ruling was you know, a ruling that essentially was purely jurisdictional. If you weren't within that period, the tax court could not hear the case. Under the prior construction canon, the theory being that the tax court, Congress had been aware of this issue for decades, and yet they never raised the issue. Now, part of the reason why they're going to go this route, to be totally honest, is because the, the collection due process case law hasn't been around that long. The special ability to throw these into the tax court has not been around nearly as long. So they're going to say, well, the long history of the, of the deficiency petition process is why you have to worry about prior construction canon, which you wouldn't have really had to worry about on the case for the collection due process. And they're saying, based on that, we're going to rule that, in fact, you know, the old analysis continues to apply. Now, this is logically close to what Justice Scalia did in his concurrence, which is kind of fun to read because he basically insults the uh, members of the court that, he's going to, that he agreed with in the case of Home Concrete Supply, a tax court case from 2012, uh, basically stating that, yeah, you know, yes, you're right. You know, in essence, the reason why the IRS could not change the rule you know, which the courts had put up years ago, and the IRS never had a reg defining gross income for the substantial emission of income six-year statute. 
What they wanted to do was change it so that if you overstated basis, so that your gain on sale was understated or your loss on sale was overstated, that that was an omission of gross income. It was fairly clear from an old colony case that either, either interpretation worked under the law, but in old colony, this court had decided that, you know, they, they, they liked the one without the basis better. But they said it was clear that, you know, either one was reasonable interpretation. Now, after that, we had cases come down later from Supreme Court that said, no, you know, if in fact there is an ambiguous statute, there's, an, there's ambiguity, and the IRS issues a reg that reasonably interprets that ambiguity, that it is considered to be the law. And what Justice Scalia said was we had overturned, we had said specifically that's our ruling. We have a prior case admitting that this was, you know, not clear. He said, okay, under that prior, under that prior, um, you know, the old statutes, but we changed the, uh, we changed essentially what was the base case for precedent that if you want to go down that path, you then would say the IRS is right now and overstatement of basis is understatement of income. He said, but I'm going to say going down this path that because there were decades where Congress never touched it and everybody knew the courts had interpreted it to be, you know, gross income, we didn't care about overstatement of basis wasn't an understatement of gross income, that in essence, time had gone too far, it shouldn't be changed. And that's the reason why basis didn't count. But as he said, you know, my colleagues want, want to say somehow that it's ambiguous but there, there, there is an obvious answer, which is like, well, that kind of removes old debt. It's not ambiguous if there's only one answer. That's not ambiguous. So what are you saying? It's kind of the same concept here they're trying to argue in this case. Please note that was the concurrence, not the majority opinion, in, you know, in home concrete supply. So one there. So what this means is outside the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, the IRS will continue to say if that petition does not come in by the 90th day, right? You don't file it by 90th day, get it postmarked, etc., or electronically submitted to their system by the end of the 90th day, by the date on the petition, the last day for submitting, then you've you've totally lost your ability to go to tax court. So if that happens to me here in Arizona, I live in Arizona, I screw up, I don't get my petition in until a day late. I'm out of luck. The tax court will say you're out of luck. We can't even hear your argument. And then it would be up to me to go to the Ninth Circuit and see if the Ninth Circuit wants to agree with the third, right? Which is a lot messier and much more costly than if they would resolve it at the tax court level. So we'll see what goes on in that realm. But if you're in the Third Circuit, say you're New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Delaware, and you miss it by two days, then they will hear that question. That's the Golson rule. Now, I would not count on an appeal of the Sanders case. First thing is, this was a pro se taxpayer. So the problem is, even if she decided she was going to appeal it, right, she'd have to go to where the Fourth Circuit holds their cases, which again, may not be close to where she lives. Uh, she'd have to litigate it there. Um, again, she's now getting to a messier. The tax court is one thing to represent yourself. Representing yourself for a court of appeals is going to be much less understanding of, of your issues and understanding it is bad. And she's probably not the best party to, to present the case. 
So I, I wouldn't suggest that this is going to be where the Fourth Circuit ends up ruling in this area. As well, even if she hired counsel to come in and argue this, there is no guarantee that even if they found that equitable relief can be considered, that doesn't mean it would be given her facts. Her facts appear to be she just waited two days beyond what was there. You should still need some sort of reasonable cause. Like, you know, was, was she hit by a truck a week before the deadline? And she stumbled out of the hospital on two days later and, you know, and crawled in to drop it on the court clerk's desk two days later. You know, is, is that what she had to do? Okay, that might be reasonable cause. And that might get you equitable relief. Um, but if it's just, I forgot, that's probably not going to get you anywhere, right? But what this means right now is only Third Circuit taxpayers are going to be able to attempt to look for equitable relief if their tax court filings are late. Otherwise, you got to decide, do I want to go to the Court of Appeals? For me, let's say here in Phoenix, I would have to decide if I want to take the case to San Francisco and have the you know Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals hear the case and then hope I prevail there and then hope after they order the tax court to consider whether equitable relief is granted, my situation is good enough to cause it to be granted. So again, I think it's going to take a while. We probably will see some of these cases come up. Uh, but until then, if you're outside the Third Circuit, and even if you're not outside the Third Circuit, I'd still try to get everything filed by the 90th day. Inside the Third Circuit, at least you've got a shot. Outside the Third Circuit, your only shot's going to be to go ahead and spend more money and go up the line and go to the Court of Appeals on your case. Because the tax court now has told us flat out that we're not going to follow that rule. We're not going to follow Third Circuit's holding unless you're in the Third Circuit. So this has been the current federal tax developments for the week of November the 6th, uh, 2023. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Capital Financial Education and your state side of CPAs. Now, next week, I'm going to be traveling to Minneapolis uh, on Sunday. Uh, don't know how much time I'll have on Friday. It'll be better than it was last week when I was outside, when I was basically in Seattle the day before, arrived back in Phoenix, you know, and got back home right around midnight and had to fly out early the next morning. Actually, I'm flying out earlier this time than last time, but at least on Friday, I'm in Phoenix. So I don't have a problem there. So we'll we'll do it at that point, but it may still be a little rushed. And hopefully I'll be able to record and send everything through. Uh, but again, always a chance I'll get delayed because I've got to do a couple of, I've got to be on the road for a couple of things uh, during the week. And then I have some more presentations to make uh, in the office uh, for various uh, various sessions. So we got a couple of things happening next week. So I got to keep all the pieces together, but I'm hoping that, you know, we'll be able to get this together. Worst case is I record it after I get to the hotel in Minneapolis and we'll see how that goes. Just like last week, I recorded it after I got to Idaho when I was going there. Uh, so anyway, it gives us some time to work on this stuff. Uh, if you have any questions, uh, you can email me at dollars at currentfortaxhelmets.com. I also uh, have tried to follow the updates on the Connect sites for Arizona, New Jersey, uh, Illinois, Minnesota, and Washington. So if you post something there, I'll try to answer if you if you if I see it and think I can. Plus, following the Idaho discussion group, so I'll keep an eye there. Otherwise, watch for us. You know, watch for this next week. Hopefully, it'll be up relatively close to on time. 
and you'll be able to follow along. And we'll talk about what's going on next week in the area of current federal tax developments.